Hey, it's Laura. If you're listening to this, you're not hearing the complete unedited version of this conversation. If you want in on that, you can get it by becoming a TMST Plus member. Just head over to our website at tmstpod.com and click support. All right, enjoy the show. Hey there, it's Laura. Well, this week's episode is another adventure of discovery. I didn't know Sarah Kubrick before Michael showed me her work. He sent me an Instagram post of hers, and while I liked it, for sure, I still didn't really appreciate what made her work different or unique. As you, I'm sure, have noticed, there are a lot of therapists taking to Instagram in the past several years, and I think the net effect of that is probably largely positive. More people have an understanding of basic psychological concepts. It's definitely lowering the scare factor on having mental health conversations. All these things are awesome. I'm also skeptical about it. Anyway, when I dug into Sarah's background, I was immediately intrigued. She's trained in a field of psychology called existential analysis. Have you heard of it before? I had not. When I started looking into it, I almost could not believe that it existed. It's a modality that layers questions of meaning, purpose, existentialism, no surprise, and responsibility that have traditionally belonged to philosophers. And it layers them into a more accessible, you know, the more accessible humanistic approach of psychotherapy. To see names like Heidegger and Nietzsche inside of a therapeutic approach was so thrilling to me. Uh, so talking to Sarah, I was so excited to talk to her and understand more, and she made it even more interesting. Her interest in psychology stems from growing up in Yugoslavia and actually living through wars, which she says caused her to have a sense of cynicism about life and humanity at a young age. As a nomad, she's lived all over the world and has the old soul wisdom that comes with directly experiencing life in many cultures in often really unpleasant circumstances. Given this background, of course, it's not surprising that she was drawn to a framework like existential analysis. What is surprising is that she's been able to make these teachings accessible to such a large audience. So she calls herself the millennial therapist on Instagram. That's her, that's her account handle. And she has over a million followers and I would presume can't prove it, but I would presume that most people do not share her background. Um, but they gather around her content. And she has this Cohen-like style of communicating big existential level ideas, but doing it in a way that is also compassionate and curious and really accessible. In our conversation, we talk about how some of the core ideas of existential philosophy, like responsibility and meaning, apply in a therapeutic approach. Uh, we talk about how Sarah came into her work and why she doesn't agree with some of the modern takes on concepts like vulnerability. Uh, I'm off social and glad for it, but I can say that the work she's doing there is a real force for good in the world. And I'm so excited for you to meet her. Enjoy. 
I am super interested in this field of existential psychology. I'm not, I didn't get any education in psychology uh, myself, but I have been what I would consider a pretty dedicated student, mostly for my own purposes, a super deep interest of mine. And I hadn't come across the existential psychology framework until I was researching you. So tell us <laughs> what it is. Yeah. I'm not actually surprised at all. It's a bit disappointing always when you're like, ah, oh, North America, come on. Um, I yeah. think it's a lot more popular in Europe. So it's a psychological modality that's grounded in European philosophy and it focuses on human nature and human experiences, um, particularly experiences that we all share, such as death. <laughs> that sounds mm -hmm. so, but death, responsibility, meaning, those sorts of questions, it really allows the client to face difficult things and ask those really difficult unnerving questions such as who am I, what is my meaning in life, um, which mm -hmm. I think are very universal. And so yeah. I, I think it's a really unique modality that way. I'll pick one thing that you mentioned in the group of, of big topics, responsibility. Like what would be the sort of approach towards a question about responsibility? Yeah. So I think what's helpful to kind of the framework of this conversation would be to understand that all those philosophical questions that we have, which have led to a lot of distress, philosophically speaking, mm -hmm. psychologists have said, well, how can we actually use these same questions to empower mm. and to ground in the reality of what it is to actually be human, which I think is really yeah. beautiful. And I think there is, you know, some basic premises like humans have the capacity for self-awareness to varying degrees, but we have the capacity for self-awareness. We have the capacity to take responsibility, to experience freedom, to create a relationship with ourselves, to seek meaning. Mm -hmm. And so, and I think all these things are really beautiful. And so if we're looking at responsibility to me in, in a session with a client, it's almost empowerment. Yeah. Freedom comes with responsibility. You cannot live without any responsibility. The fact that you're free and the more free you are, the more responsible you are. It's your thrown into life, so to speak. But that also makes you very empowered. I think people always get stuck on the fear of responsibility when in reality it just means you get to create who you want to become and you get to create the life that you want to live. We really, we really messed that one up in in Western culture in the US, like really bad. Mm. This notion of responsibility gets really murky and, you know, the, the even just saying personal responsibility aligns you with a particular political group. And then it just like, all these things get glommed onto that. When in, in my experience, respons appropriate responsibility and acceptance of one's responsibility is, is the, one of the most empower empowering good news things that we can do for ourselves. Absolutely. And I think responsibility got diluted with the concept of performity. Say, say more. <laughs> I feel like being responsible for yourself is not the same thing as performing for others um, yeah. and appearing responsible. These are yeah. not the same things. And I think sometimes 
we we try to oversimplify concepts like this and that's where we get in trouble and in psychology in general where sometimes being responsible for yourself might appear irresponsible to others and sometimes by being responsible towards others may infringe upon your ability to be responsible for yourself and i'm not saying there is you know a, a perfect solution for this but that's just the reality And so sometimes it's really complicated and really difficult to know what it means to be responsible. And it'd be really great if we as a society understood that and offered grace. And I just don't think that that happens. And responsibility is such a ugly word now. And even in psychology, you know, I have friends who are on Instagram as well. And they'll be like, every time I write about responsibility, it does not do well. <laughs> because we've also confused responsibility with blame. Correct. And so we're trying to place responsibility on other people, which totally fine. Some people should take responsibility, but there has to be a distinction between blaming someone and asking them to be responsible. And so it's, it's really- Yeah, blame has an entirely different energy. Uh, totally different, different energy. And it's a dead end road. It's a dead end road. The intention is completely different. Me saying I really want you to take responsibility for the way you hurt me is different than me wanting to just blame you for the way you hurt me. And sometimes maybe you do deserve the blame, but again, the intention and and the the potential resolution is really limited. Yeah, that's a beautiful way of putting it. So how did you get into this? How did you (laughs) find it? How, How did you get into it? Yeah, so this is... A long story. You can cut it. Cut it in no, pieces. no. I like we like the long, the long ones. Yeah. So, I my background is I grew up in former Yugoslavia, which is now Serbia and Bosnia and a bunch of yeah. different countries. And then the war started, so we fled to Serbia. And then the second war started, and we moved to Canada. So, my view of humanity was quite. I would say negative from a very young age. Mm. And I really gravitated towards heavy and dark literature is what I'll say. So I read Dostoevsky when I was like 13. I don't think that's like super normal, uh, but I think the way he experienced the complexity of humanity really resonated with me because I could not make sense of so much hatred and so much pain that I've seen and experienced. And so you know, some people call Dostoevsky an existentialist as well. And so he posed all these questions and I think it just kind of stayed with me. And then when I was in grad school, I was actually into like cognitive science and neurology and and like just the complete opposite where I was like, you know, I don't, I don't need those feelings. Give me solutions. I I don't need rationality. I just want rationality. Yeah. You know? And so it was just, I think at that time I was also running away from myself a little bit as well, Mm -hmm. uh, which is really fascinating. And so long story short, in grad school, some of my professors were existential therapists and they said, Hey, there is the second sort of equivalent, probably to another master's that's going to be offered from Vienna in existential analysis, which is a particular field of existential therapy. And I was like, oh my God. And I wow. went to like a seminar. It was like three days long. And I was like, take my money. And then I started the training. And nothing's ever made sense to me before. I think it was a time that I made sense of myself and I made sense of the world and the suffering I saw and the way to alleviate some of that suffering. And so it's a really personal story, but I think I really liked it because it was solution focused. It wasn't about just the way that you behave or you think. It was about who you are. And it was about embracing the complexity 
facilitating authenticity and facilitating responsibility. And to me, those were huge because I know that life can't be perfect. And I think that that sort of naivety was stripped away at a very young age. So it was really cool. I feel like it's really holistic. Mm-hmm. I felt like it was saying all the things I didn't know how to articulate, but very yeah. much knew deeply inside of me all along. And I find that, you know, they do pay attention to somatic experiences. They do pay attention to your thoughts. It's not that they, you know, just totally ignore it, but I, I just have found it to be one of the most, and this is a big, <laughs> this is a big um, claim I'm making here, but That's I do okay. find it one of the most holistic approaches because I you know I've been trained in many modalities and this is the only modality and I'll use tools from other modalities sometimes but this is the one where I'm like when I look at a client to really fully understand them and their existence this is the framework that I use and I think that that's a really powerful tool to have as a as a therapist. How do you refer in existential psychology how do you refer to the self? What aspects of the self are you most focused on? You said it's holistic. So do you talk about mind, body, spirit? Is is there a concept of Nietzsche was very, he talked about God sort of like. Yeah, no, this is a super wonderful question. I think in existential analysis, there's four fundamental motivations or four pillars, if you want to call them. Um, And they all relate. They're all kind of interconnected. So it's a it's a bit complex, but you have your relationship with the world, with other people and your values, with your emotions. And then you have your relationship with yourself and you have relationship with your meaning Mm. and your purpose in life. Mm. And whenever, for example, you have a client come in, what you would often do is you would obviously listen to their story, but more often not, you will pick up on which fundamental motivation they're struggling with. And they're all interconnected. So, you know, if one motivation is really struggling, chances are there's another one. And when we look at the self, we really look at it holistically as in how does your sense of self exist in the world? Does it feel like it can even exist? Do you have the support? Do you have, and not just like financial support, but can your body physically support you to exist? Mm. And then you have like, do you like to exist? This is the second existential question. It's like, do you like to exist in this world? Are you connecting to your values, to your emotions, to the people around you? And then you have the third one. Are you connecting to yourself? Do you have permission to be yourself? Do you know who that is? Are you creating who that person is? And then the final one is, are you creating the meaning? Is there a meaning? And that can be very spiritual and religious, or that can have nothing to do with that at all. But it's the concept, the meaning is incredibly, incredibly important for humans. Yes, 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 yes. Oh, that's so exciting. Yeah. Say the four again, just so. Uh, the four questions or the four, mo- like, the four pillars? Mo- pillars. Okay, so it's your relationship with the world, your relationship with other people, your relationship yeah. with yourself, and your relationship with meaning in life. Part of what I think is exciting is because what... I feel has gone missing from American culture. I can't speak to European culture or mm-hmm. really anywhere else with with any intelligence is this connection to meaning mm-hmm. and conversations around meaning. And I think this is tied to the responsibility conversation what I'm deeply interested in 
is conversations around meaning and what makes what makes one's life meaningful. What's it like to have conversations with people about that? Yeah. The people that seek me out are not always people that are searching for meaning, but I think ultimately that question gets addressed at some point. Mm-hmm. I do find that people who have really succeeded quite young are often the ones asking that question a lot earlier. So once you have the success, the money, the career, the New York lifestyle, and you still don't like your life or yourself or don't know what the point is, that's when it gets really scary. I think as long as we're striving towards any goal, that kind of becomes a placeholder for our purpose or it becomes our whole purpose. But once we've ticked that box, it becomes really scary. Um, I think it's another reason why we live in a society that's obsessed with being busy. I think it's a part of avoiding yourself. It's not about the fact that we like to be overworked. Why do we have Netflix and we just watch it all the time? Yes, it's not entertaining, but I think it's also escapism. And so I think that the conversation's not being had because it does induce anxiety. And even when I talk to my friends, because I'm that really fun friend at a party, like, so what's your meaning in life? (laughs) How are you relating to your meaning today? (laughs) How are you relating to your meaning, you know? And it's so fascinating to see people just get, not fascinating, maybe that's the wrong word, but really frazzled or or not know. Um, And, you know, it took me a while and I think your meaning can change. It's not something that has Mm. to be you know, set in stone. And mine goes along the lines of what you said with responsibility, but it's also responsibility to other people. For me, if you're not serving in some capacity, if you're not making an impact in some capacity, I really struggle then to find meaning in life. And, you know, people might not agree with that at all. And that's totally fine. But it took me a while to figure out what it was that made me go, I'm I'm going to embrace life and wake up every day. And this is what actually makes me feel grounded and aligned and all that good stuff. And he was serving in some capacity. And so I think having these sorts of conversations with other people, many came to a very similar conclusion with my friends, which I think is interesting where I'm like, who do we all like link together? (laughs) Because we have the same meaning and we don't even know it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't you feel like there's never a case where you're not impacting people. Mm-hmm. You're either impacting them in a service, or, you know, in, in a positive way or a negative way. Absolutely. I think what I was tr- poorly articulating was taking responsibility for that impact is what gives yes. me meaning, not just the fact that I impact because then as you said, A, I do it all the time, but B, can be completely meaningless. I think when you're really intentional about the type of impact you want to create, then it becomes something that's filled with meaning. So I think that's a super great point. Hi, I'm Michael. I'm the executive producer of Tell Me Something True, and I co-created the show with Laura. We built TMST and our online community with the hope of creating a sane spot on the internet. We're really passionate about the ad-free nature of this work. Our belief is that this project will work best if we're not hustling to keep advertisers happy. And we keep our attention on you, the TMST community. This is where you can play a major role. TMST Plus is the membership group that helps to keep this podcast going. 
Whether it's through a monthly membership or a one-time contribution, TMST Plus members are vital to this experiment. As a TMST Plus member, you get to join Laura for member-only events, send in questions for the guests, hear the complete unedited interviews, and connect with other TMST community members. You know, sometimes we feel like we can't make a difference in the world. With a TMST Plus membership, you can be keeping this space alive and thriving for a one-time gift or for as little as 10 bucks a month. You can find the link in the show description, and then please head over to tmstpod.com right now to support the show. And thanks. Your handle is the Millennial <laughs> Therapist on Instagram. Yeah. What is what is that about? Like, how did that come to be? And is it that you see certain because you are a millennial or that you, and so that there you're focused on, you know, issues that are specific to millennials. And, and if so, like, what are you seeing? Yeah. So that name was a bit of an accident, not an accident, but it was just like brainstorming. I was like, well, this sounds good. I can always change it. Yeah. My, my initial thought with my handle was to ensure that whoever followed me understood that I was a millennial non-millennials can definitely follow me. I get people are like, I'm not a millennial, but I like your page. I'm like, thank God. Like it's not meant just for millennials. Like It's okay. Like you don't need to show me your ID. No, but I have lived as a nomad for so long at this point. And I have a very millennial type lifestyle. So work remotely, um, Mm -hmm. live all over the place. My time zone change every couple of weeks, months. And I almost wanted the people that follow me to understand a bit about who I am. And then also understand that I know what it's like to be a millennial and that I can resonate with what it's like to kind of live through that as well. And so that's where it came from. I also, you know, at that time was like, I need to get clients. And I was like, I want my clients to understand we're on the same page, <laughs> but also like I travel. So like, you know, our sessions won't be always at the same time. <laughs> like it was just, I don't know, a lot of random thought went into this. Yeah. And I, I do think that it was really helpful. And I think it's so beautiful to have a community that's probably largely millennials um, mm-hmm. because we're all going through something. And I had a conversation the other week with, um, I think it was my sister, where it's really difficult for millennials to have mentors nowadays. And I think it's because no one's lived through what we've lived. So I have some really wonderful mentors in my life, but culturally they don't really understand what it's like to live in the media world because they're 70 right. they never did it. And so I think a lot of millennials are finding that it's hard to have mentors in a normal sense and that we are kind of mentors for each other. Wow. Um, I've never thought about that. Which is like, if I need help or guidance with something, I'm more likely to ask another 30-year-old than I am someone older because they're probably lacking the experience and the reference, not about everything. But it it was so fascinating because I came to this conclusion. I was like, wow, we're probably... I don't know. I feel like a really unique generation that way where we've created a society in which we don't actually know how to function. The change happened so quickly. So quickly. And there was no blueprint for it. And we're like, wow, yay, great. So much has changed. And then we're like, oh my God. (laughs) 
And yes. so our relationships like suffered our sense of self. Oh my goodness. I think people are really having a hard time identifying who that is. I think there's a lot yeah. of overstimulation. There's a lot of disconnect, even though we're all more connected through social media. I think there are a lot of components that have made the millennial generation a bit more complex and demanding. It's no longer enough to have a house and a home and earn a salary. And that's great. It's like, no, you should be a millionaire and only work two times, like two hours a week, but also <laughs> you should be, be a millionaire by 25. Right. Yeah. 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 And it's just like, there are so many insane expectations on mm. this um, generation that I think it is quite unique and maybe hard to resonate unless you've lived through it. And so Um, I'm glad you brought this up because I have a lot more empathy, (laughs) to be honest. (laughs) The fact, because the things that I struggle, a lot of the things that I struggle with, that we're all struggling with, how connected we are with technology, with the internet, with social media, like that is the last 10, 15 years. It's not before that, right? So, but I got to live most of my life and my early adult life without that. Mm. Whereas... You didn't. I. That's really interesting. I'm. I'm glad you brought you brought it up, and that it's like it would be hard to have mentors. You specialize in what you call moral trauma. Mm-hmm. What is moral trauma? <laughs> so uh, I use that as a big, broad term, just to give people some indication of what it is. But I actually specialize in something called moral injury. And moral injury is the experience of having transgressed one's morals, ethics, or values. And the spiritual and psychological- self. You do it to yourself. So actually, there's three different ways you can experience it. You can witness something that's been done that transgresses your ethics or morals. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can do it yourself or something can be done to you. And the psychological and spiritual consequences of something like that, it's not a psychological disorder- but it's a very painful human experience that for a long time mimicked symptoms of PTSD, um, actually started off uh, in military studies. And then over the last, I would say, decade, so in 2009, it was kind of coined. Um, but in the last decade, it kind of started to be teased out and realized like this is a very different experience, but it often comes with the experience of PTSD within military population. So is this what the modern language around trauma is like, is it different? This is a really complicated field of study because there isn't even an agreed upon definition really. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And there is certain individuals within the field that classify it as trauma, a a type of trauma, and there's people that don't. And I think it's a really powerful human experience that can have equally detrimental consequences, if not yeah. dealt with appropriate, appropriately. How do you approach that? What is, what, why are you drawn to this area and what sort of about it is pertinent to your practice? Yeah, so that's great. I was drawn to it initially because I've lived through wars and I don't have PTSD. I don't have diagnosable trauma, mm-hmm. but I knew that it changed me. And I knew that it changed me in ways that wasn't necessarily beneficial or, or healthy. And I was really curious to see, was there a concept out there that spoke to that experience? And moral injury was the closest thing that came to it. Okay. I personally um, actually did studies outside the military, which 
I don't know if there are many. I did one within domestic violence and I did one within infidelity right now for my dissertation. So do we get morally injured if we cheat on someone? It's actually um, about the perpetrators of infidelity. And so I'm just really curious if it's not trauma, but it's life changing. If it's self-altering, what is it? And so that's kind of where the curiosity goes because I have many clients who don't experience trauma or are not diagnosed with trauma, but they've definitely experienced things morally that have altered them and they don't know how to reconcile and move forward. Wow. Yeah. I, I'd be so curious about as someone who cheated on my part, my husband for a long, I was, it was very wrapped up in my drinking and everything. And I've talked Mm -hmm. openly about this enough, but I would have a lot to say about that. Like being the person who did that. I don't know the exact definition of moral injury, but it it sounds right. (laughs) Yeah. And no one listens to perpetrators of infidelity is what I found. It's such a taboo topic that everyone's like, well, you caused the hurt. So it's like there was a lot of hurt probably that that they were feeling before they caused hurt. But I would say that, you know, even if you're the perpetrator, quote unquote, you still need compassion and love and healing because hurting another human I don't think we'll ever feel natural for a human being <laughs> as in, no. you know, by hurting huma- humanity, you're hurting the human or the humanity within yourself. And I think that came through really uh, strongly within my research. Wow. I, I'm really glad you're doing that. But I think that that applies to a lot of areas, right? The extraordinary pain definitely applies to people who struggle with addiction because they commit mm. so many injurious acts to people around them. I always say, you know, they hate themselves more than you ever could. They're in more pain on their own (laughs) than you could impart on them. That's a really tough conversation to have though, because there are real injuries, you know? Yeah. Yeah, So I'm really glad you're doing that work. Thank you. Your Instagram for as much as I dislike Instagram for myself, (laughs) Uh, these days I do, I do, I do know and, and very much appreciate that there are spaces within there that are beautiful and very helpful and your space feels good when you're in it. Thank you. And you, you do present things in a slightly irreverent way. Sometimes I understand why now okay. given talking to you and you, and I mean, that is a total compliment. Okay. It's, I was like, I'm not sure what you mean by that. Oh, I mean that in the best way. There's so much um, pop psychology and just there's a way we're supposed to be talking about vulnerability right now because mm. of good yeah. good work that has been, you know, just turned into memes and stuff. Yeah. And I love what you had to say about vulnerability. Just the idea that vulnerability is not always appropriate and not always even good. Yeah, absolutely. I think I just kind of got tired of seeing vulnerability be forced. Yeah. Um, particularly, actually, I was having a conversation about TikTok. Whole oh, other boy. world. I like literally started an account this week. Just oh, to you see did. It. I, oh, you're just, so brave. I know, and I don't like actually going on it because I find it too overwhelming. But if I put a couple videos out there and someone wants to watch, great. But it's not a platform that I genuinely enjoy. It was interesting because 
a lot of friends, interviewers, people are talking about how traumatizing it can be to be on there because people will express really vulnerable oh things totally. that trigger the crap out of people. And it can be quite damaging. And then they will also get really hateful comments, which can then be damaging on them. And anyways, I was just sitting there listening to this culture of vulnerability. And I was like, wow, that is incredibly inappropriate. <laughs> just yeah. like for so many reasons. First, my heart goes out to the person who's being hated on for being so vulnerable. And then my heart goes out to people who were just scrolling as they ate their meal and then, you know, got triggered. And so it was kind of a long way where I started to see vulnerability really be forced or, you know, I have clients who say during, you know, work, I'm forced to talk about feelings because we have this circle of connection and all this stuff, whatever it is. And I just think vulnerability leads to intimacy. Vulnerability within itself is really intimate and you need safety. Yes. In intimacy. <laughs> you need yes. safety and space for vulnerability and why would you want to be vulnerable with someone that you don't want to be intimate with? I'm not talking about lying. Don't be dishonest, but there's a difference between honesty and vulnerability and it's not always safe, right? Vulnerability by definition is being exposed and you don't need to be exposed all the time. You can choose when you want to be exposed. And when you choose those moments, that's beautiful and I know that as a society, we've just shied away from it for so much that there is this like overcorrection now. But yeah. I just kind of wanted to let people know that it's okay if you don't want to be vulnerable with everybody. It's okay if you're crying and don't make a story about it on Instagram. Oh like it's God. okay. And it's okay to take care not of only, yourself. Not only yeah. is it okay, but it's like, please. Yeah. Because – I I mean, whenever I see cry faces, you know, people snap a picture of them crying, I think that is a sacred moment moment of your life. Mm-hmm. So I think the instinct, the impulse comes from a very honest place in us of just really a need, mm-hmm. an honest need. Of course. And we're told, oh, this might work if I mm-hmm. tell you, you know, if I share this sacred moment with you. I might get something of what I need. Mm -hmm. And you probably will. You will. A little bit. You might get that moment of validation. Mm -hmm. But again, there's competing needs there too. So I don't think you're going to get the ultimate validation and acknowledgement that you truly want, which is probably from yourself. I think if your attention is, I had a hard moment and now my attention is external, You're not paying attention to what's happening. I mean, there's people that post and I think part of it, wow, that's beautiful because now it tells people like even people on social media seem perfect, have tough days. I've never done a crying picture, but I've definitely been a picture of like, hey, I had a shitty day today. Like, Mm -hmm. and, Mm -hmm. you know, people thank you for that. Great. Mm -hmm. But if every time you don't feel okay with yourself, it's taken publicly for for it to be resolved or solved or addressed in an external way, that's where we get in trouble. When it comes to vulnerability, you know, I'll put like, had a bad day, but I won't be like, this is why I had a bad day. And for me, that's a personal boundary where I speak very little about myself, but enough for you to know that I'm a legit ass human. I'm not, you know, whatever you might think I am with projections and assumptions and, you know, right. whatever comes with Instagram where people just assume everyone's life is rainbows and butterflies. Um, But I think boundaries are really important with vulnerability. Vulnerability without boundaries can also be self-harm. 
Wow. I want to just linger on that point about when you take something that's happening internal and you put it ex- out externally. Mm. I've done this so many times to get out of the feeling mm. and out yeah. and try to fast track the process of feeling better. Mm-hmm. But it never took the place of actually healing. Can we even receive the gifts of intimacy with someone we don't know or with people online? Like, is that even possible? Hmm, that's such a good question. Genuine intimacy, arguably no, because I think for genuine intimacy, there has to be so much safety, which I don't know how you would possibly achieve that with a stranger from the internet. I think you can get a sense of belonging, maybe a moment Mm -hmm. of connection, of validation, of appreciation. But I think over time, you could probably build intimacy. But I think we also have to be careful with what kind of intimacy we would build with people. (laughs) Like intimacy is also not appropriate in all contexts. Correct. That's another thing, right? It's hugely not appropriate. It's in, hugely in, not in appropriate most in a lot of contexts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, we talk about people are like, well, sexual intimacy. It's like, no, emotional intimacy is also not appropriate in a lot of contexts. And so that's something we need to keep in mind. Again, we're like intimacy, vulnerability, yay. And then like words such as responsibility and boundaries, it's like, no, but we really need all of them to to actually create something that's healthy because both are both can be taken to extremes. Yeah, and and I'll tie this off here, but I think so much of it is for in my own experience was wanting to make it happen faster. <laughs> to want. Mm. I mean, it's it's such a long game. Like I just keep thinking about the long game of sobriety, the long game of therapy. I have tricked myself into thinking I was better than I better off than I was emotionally because of social media, because of chasing different highs, you know, addictions in different forms. And that hit of fake intimacy or connection can carry you for a while, right? Oh, yeah. I Absolutely. We, we think it's real for a long time or we don't want to acknowledge the fact that it's not. And I think the issue with healing and that's also become, it's so sad. <laughs> I feel like some of these words are just being so stolen. Um, I know. And misused is healing is never going to relieve you of being human. Do you yes. know what I mean? <laughs> like, of course I know what you mean. Yeah. My, my friend Sam Lamott says, I'm sorry, but I can't remove your humanity. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, you, and so like, I also think we have unrealistic expectations and then people are like, well, if we don't have high expectations, we're going to be shitty humans. And maybe yeah. that's true if there wasn't responsibility, but I feel like responsibility and acceptance of our humanity together is quite a beautiful balance. But I think when we're expecting to never feel pain, when we think about past events or never, those things are just not realistic. And so the fact that you're crying in your car is probably okay. Sometimes it's just okay. And it's a really good way that your emotions are communicating with you. And now you're more aware and more embodied. And that's beautiful. We're not trying to get rid of this. Amen. (laughs) That's a good place to land. We are not trying to get rid of this. All right. 
Thank you so much for being with us today. If you want more TMST, head on over to tmstpod.com and become a member. Members get access to the full uncut versions of these conversations, previews of upcoming guests, invites to join me for members-only events, and access to our members-only community where I hang out a lot, especially now that I'm not on social media. We decided from the beginning to make this an independent project. We don't have sponsors and we don't run ads. This means that we can make the show all about you and not what our sponsors or advertisers want. But it also means we're 100% reliant on your support. So my request and my invitation is simple. Support the show by becoming a member or you can simply make a one-time donation of as little as $5. I cannot stress this enough. You can make a huge difference for as little as $5 please head over to tmstpod.com right now. Tell Me Something True is engineered and mixed by Paul Chufo. Michael Elsesser and I dreamed up this show, and we're looking forward to joining you online and next time on Tell Me Something True. Tell Me Something True.